1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Right now, let's get over to Hans Albrecht. Uh, he is a portfolio manager and option strategist at Horizons ETF Management and um, a great day to have you on, Hans, because we've had some really kind of weird news in the ETF space. <laughs> I'm thinking of the short arc ETF, which Matt Levine was writing about yesterday. I mean, if you don't like Kathy Wood's strategy, you could just find out what she's going long and short it yourself. Um, or you could just short the arc ETF. Why would someone feel compelled to build a short arc ETF? Well, I, I think
2: uh, you know. I, I think it's a bit like uh, shorting Bitcoin. You know, there's a we have a product actually that allows you to uh, take part in uh, short Bitcoin effectively, uh, and I think that becomes a bit of a trading vehicle for people because you know the, to- the stocks that Kathy uh, tends to invest in are these exponential, these emerging technologies uh, that often get uh, you know stretched and overextended and. And I think this sort of gives people a way to kind of play both sides of the equation um, because, uh, you know, some of these companies are smaller and uh, we know that Kathy's. Uh, you know, can have large uh, a, a large percentage of the holdings of some of these companies. And uh, some people think that that's sort of something that can reverse over time. So a bit of a mean reversion play uh, from that perspective, I think. Uh, but I'd say that's more of a, a trader's uh, trader's vehicle than something you want to hold for a long time. Because, of course, I'm in a, I'm a yeah. true believer in these technologies over time.
3: So, Hans, other news we got today came from BMW, kind of warning about the impact of the chip shortage on its business. So maybe that's not a reason to want to be invested in an automaker like that, but maybe it's a good investment idea to invest in the company that makes the products that are seeing a shortage the chip makers. And uh, you obviously uh, at Horizon ETFs launched uh, CHPS, the first Canadian semiconductor ETF. What kind of interest are you seeing in that product?
2: We're seeing some good interest. It's the first one uh, that really takes uh, a very global perspective. So a lot of the products you see out there, uh, the socks and things like that, have uh, very much a, a U.S. focus. And uh, what we'd like to uh, talk about is that, you know, this is really a global movement, this exponential and emerging movement where semiconductors are the new oil, right? We hear about data being the new oil. Semis are really the new oil. The oil. They, they make up the foundation for almost everything uh, in our new world. And... And that goes for everywhere in the world. And so you've got some areas of the world. Uh, Asia is the biggest cloud growth area in the world. You've got uh, robotics and automation being very, very big in that part of the world. So it's better to have exposure to companies that are some of the very big and influential companies that exist outside of uh, outside of the U.S.
1: Is there going to be a, a time in, you know, the near to medium term future when we ramp up? Chip production by so much and demand falls off that we have a glut.
2: Well, it could be. You know, we, we oftentimes we kind of uh, we overextend one way or another. I think it's going to be difficult in the in the chip space because it is very uh, very capex um, extensive, uh, very capex intensive. Um, And so it's not that easy to adjust. Uh, And and we saw that in the during the pandemic where some some areas like automakers sort of uh, it was very much uh, uh, an example of expectation versus an an actual reality jolt where everybody sort of took their pedal, took their foot off the pedal. uh, And then suddenly uh, auto demand, you know, went through the roof because everybody started doing the good old American day trip, uh, the good old American uh, road trip. Um, and so, when when things get out of balance in that to that perspective, uh, you, you can have some problems. Some of that capacity went to other areas of chip demand, and then when the automakers needed that demand again, it wasn't there. And it's very difficult to kind of move to shift that uh, capacity around. Uh, and it's going to take a little while for for us to solve this problem because it isn't
1: as easy as flicking a switch. I'm a road trip fanatic, and when <laughs> I go on a road me trip, not at all. I like to bring my iPhone, my Apple Watch, my iPad. I need as many chips as I basically can in the car to feel like I'm safe. Hans, thanks so much for joining us. Hans Albersch there is a VP and Portfolio Manager at Horizons ETF Management. We've got to get you back on and talk uh, more about chips in the future.
2: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
1: Let's bring in Kara Murphy. She is Chief Investment Officer at Kestra Holdings. They have $123 billion of assets under management. And, uh, Kara, you are optimistic, right? I mean, at least in terms of the economy, you think we see uh, some good signs with foot traffic, air traffic, consumer spending, Etc. how much longer does that continue? Or have we maybe peaked?
5: So I am optimistic. And I think part of it is because we still have a tremendous amount of momentum in the system, both from fiscal and monetary stimulus that started last year. But, you know, we've been looking very closely as COVID case counts go up, like how is the consumer actually reacting? So while certainly a health concern um, on a continuing basis, What we're seeing is that people aren't really changing their behavior very much. Um, We're continuing to see foot traffic, even in COVID hotspots in places like restaurants, hotels, gyms. Air traffic is holding steady at 80% of pre-COVID levels. Consumer spending is now, you know, above pre-COVID levels. So what we're seeing is that the economic impacts of the increased case counts are pretty minimal.
3: Okay, so does that mean you want to keep going toward the value, the cyclical, the reopening kind of plays? Yeah, well, I think we are starting to see
5: a rotation towards a little bit more quality um, in the market. Uh, But I do think there's a nice consumer theme out there as well. So areas like home builders, discount retailers, those are areas that will continue to benefit from both the consumer kind of coming out of their pandemic shell, uh, low interest rates, uh, being willing to actually walk stores again. Um, And so I think there's some interesting opportunities there.
1: What about the growth stocks? What about um, those uh, mega techs that have powered this market higher? Are you done with those?
5: <laughs> yeah, I, it's very hard to bet against those stocks. right? right? I mean, like tremendous top line growth, free cash flow generation, um, a, an enormous amount of momentum. So, so I wouldn't want to bet against them. But I think their attractiveness compared to, let's say, a year ago is lower.
3: Let's talk about ESG. We actually have a great live blog going on on the terminal right now. You can type live T-L-I-V-GO into your terminal, and it's with Steve Liberatore over at uh, Nuveen talking about ESG and the, the risk of greenwashing. How do you get around that greenwashing risk when trying to make ESG-oriented investments?
5: So I, I think, first of all, it's important to understand that, that there is a growing demand for the ability to express your values in a portfolio. And so we certainly see this um, with our clients who are asking to be able to have some consistency between what's important to them and the holdings that they have. So I think that's one very important trend to keep in mind. Another is that like the data that we have in ESG is so much better. The analytical capability is so much better than what we had like 10 years ago. So, you know, I think this concern about greenwashing is the idea that, you know, suddenly everybody's got an ESG bend and everybody's, you know, using these other factors to sort of uh, determine investments. Um, and that is a risk, but we're in so much better place today than we were 10 years ago. Um, so I think that's all a very good thing.
1: Yeah. And also, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to drive up the cost of capital of bad businesses or do you sure. invest in good businesses, hoping that sometime regulation gets passed? Um It seems like an interesting conundrum to me. I want to get to home builders because um, you have written about the the pullback that we've seen, um, but there's still so much demand, as Kaylee and I can attest to, um, for homes (laughs) and so little inventory. What happens here?
5: (laughs) Well, I mean, I think you can guess, right? Tremendous demand, limited supply. You know, I think that's really going to continue to buoy uh, prices, particularly of homes. And you know the home builders have been very deliberate in sort of holding back some of their inventory, um, so we'll start to see that come online in the second half of this year, and then even into next year. And in the meantime, we've seen a lot of input costs really recede. I mean, lumber has gotten a lot of attention, and that's come back tremendously. At the same time that home builder shares have been receding, so and then even when we look at valuations, while they're you know towards the high end of their typical valuation range, as earnings continue to increase. Um, as these homes come back online, as prices hold firm, um, I, I think you'll continue to see these stocks do well.
3: Maybe good news for the homebuilders' stocks, less so for Matt Miller, who's trying to buy a house in Westchester, potentially. <laughs> I don't know how much that's luck, very luck very Matt's going to have.
1: I've had some listeners write in with some tips. Oh, so well, if anybody knows oh, of a place great. in Bronxville, Yeah.
3: <laughs> Matt is using his platform to get tips. And um, we only have about 30 seconds left. But of course, earnings season's winding down. We still, though, will hear from the retailers later on this month. How strong of a position are they in?
5: I think the retailers are in a great position. So, you know, we're particularly focused on the discount ones who didn't benefit as much from, like, the rush to online last year. But like I said, starting to see more foot traffic. We're also seeing um, wage increases, particularly in low-wage earners, which, again, should really help those discount retailers.
1: Kara, thanks so much for joining us today. Kara Murphy there, Chief Investment Officer over at Kestra Holdings. I said they had $123 billion in assets under management. So um, some real firepower there and some great insight on what to do in this market. Kayla, you're not looking for – I thought you were looking for a house too.
3: I would, In theory, that would be great, Matt. But after looking at what Prices has done over the last couple months, I think I'm just going to have to wait it out see when it cools down. Maybe I'll find my entry point.
1: Yeah, I may. I may try and wait it out as well. Hopefully it'll cool down by like January or February. Um, but it's an amazing market right now. If you're a seller, I know a guy who sold a house. He put his house on the market Friday and it was done cash, no contingencies within like five minutes. Wow. Uh, yeah, very, um, very hot market. (laughs) All right, our big take today is on Gary Gensler, the head of the SEC, readying more crypto oversight. His intention is to protect investors, and he's made that pretty clear. But the thing is... He's also, um, I guess, he's said at least open or neutral on the technology, the blockchain technology, and he even taught a class at MIT about it. So a lot of people have speculated he might be a friend to the crypto world. Robert Schmidt joins us, who wrote the Big Take story today with Benjamin Bain. And, Robert, I guess, you know— The issue is a lot of crypto investors, a lot of crypto believers are also very libertarian, and a lot of people take that to mean also anti-regulation.
6: Hey, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me. And it is true. I mean, this is a a system that is developed kind of outside of the government, so there's kind of a real hesitancy on some of the people who are real enthusiasts here uh, to have the government weigh in uh, and set rules for this market. Um, but as you saw with our Gensler piece, Gensler is um, saying, you know what, the government has to have a role here. This is a $1.6 trillion market and growing. And so from an investor standpoint, he doesn't think that there's a lot of protections.
3: Talk a little bit about his his background and how exactly that informs his opinion and his policy approach when it comes to crypto.
6: Yeah, it is fascinating because the government, as you guys might imagine, is not Full of crypto experts,
1: uh, and, <laughs> <What>? uh, <laughs> replace crypto with anything.
6: <laughs> well, true, and especially you know talking to people say on Capitol Hill, right? Nobody knows exactly what any of this stuff is, and it is confusing. Um, so Gensler has really put himself in an interesting place because he's uh, he's one of the few people who really understands this stuff, and he developed a very popular course at MIT on blockchain and money. Um, he's long been interested in kind of the inter- intersection of finance and technology, uh, and he studied it for three years before he was appointed uh, SEC chairman. So he says, well, look, this is serendipity, but uh, I'm glad I'm here and I'm glad I understand this stuff.
1: Well, and there are a lot of people, um, there are people in the crypto space. I shouldn't say a lot because I don't know how many, but I, I we talk to on a regular basis, People who work um, with crypto in the investment world and um, people who are pro-regulation of in some form or another who say that we need to have some uh, clear-cut rules in order to get this really widely adopted and going, Um, maybe Gensler is their friend.
6: Yeah, he is, I think. Although, you know, it all comes down to, um, as everything does in Washington, the details of this stuff. and. What kind of regulation and oversight you want, but um, that's true. Gensler talked to us about you know the early days of the auto industry, and he said, well, you know, people were driving around, there were barely roads, there were no traffic lights, there were no speed limits, people were getting killed, you know. And once the government stepped in and said, hey, we got to have some some kind of rules here, uh, the industry took off. And he seized, you know. Um, crypto as as similar, that it really does need some guardrails there uh, before it's widely adopted. I should point out
1: that I normally live in Berlin, and uh, living in Germany, probably the number one best thing about living in Germany, actually by far and away, is the fact that there's no speed limit (laughs) on the Autobahn. I I, I can't believe no other developed Western countries have that, because it's such a great part of life there. But I digress. Right, it has moving nothing on, to man. do with your column. Back so. to the story. Yeah. Back
3: to Gary Gensler, Robert. I guess my once he forms an opinion about this and kind of decides what direction he wants to go with this regulation, what kind of speed and or lack thereof are we talking about with how some of these things could actually come to fruition?
6: Yeah. Well, you know that uh, the government is never fast about anything, um, and Gensler also has a lot on his plate. Uh, a lot of stuff that we've talked about over the over the months, you know, about the GameStop uh, trading and uh, Archegos' uh, family office blow-up. He's got a lot of things that he needs to deal with, uh, stuff that's complex, high-profile, um, and he's just added this to his list. So we're not totally sure, but it will be a while. And... Um, You know, he is, uh, as we point out in our article, he ran the Commodities Futures Trading Commission during the Obama administration and put in a whole new set of rules for uh, swaps, which, you know, many people think was a big cause of the financial crisis. And he did it fast, and he muscled it through. So people are not uh, discounting his ability to do this.
1: Yeah, no, he's, he's, I guess, he's kind of heroic almost in in that he – Uh, came to the rescue there, and I think a lot of people on both sides of the aisle have a lot of respect for him. You quote Hester Pierce, a Republican commissioner on the SEC, who is also more of a libertarian. She says, I come from a perspective that people should have the maximum freedom to engage in transactions they want to engage in voluntarily. Sounds almost American of her, Um, but she is supportive, too, of some regulation. She says society needs to have that discussion about what the right regulatory framework is.
6: Yeah, she thinks that, like, hey, we need to set rules, and maybe what she sees as regulations might be different than what Gensler sees as regulations, but she kind of agrees that uh, in order for this all to take off and be beneficial to society and, um, you know, maybe help our economy grow, that you really do need to kind of tell everybody uh, what, the, what the rules are. So, you know, they don't disagree on that. They probably do disagree on, um, on you know, what the actual policy might be. But that's what these commissions do. They have five members. They get together. They talk about it. And they try to hash something out.
1: And just to be clear, you know, one of the, one of the big problems that we have in crypto, anybody who reads Matt Levine's columns um, gets a lot of info about the DeFi space and the fact that there are these Ponzi schemish rug pull um, scams that continue to get investors over and over again. Not that the investors don't expect it to happen. I think a lot of people going into this know that they're going to get ripped off half the time. <laughs> but this is what they one of the main things they want to put a stop to, right?
6: Yeah, they sure do. And the SEC kind of since uh you know since crypto exploded uh has been kind of pursuing an aggressive enforcement approach on this and and Gensler definitely says that you know the fraud has got to stop we've got to figure out how to do this uh, and he said he was going to continue um the investigations into all of this stuff
3: can you talk about the the influence Gensler wields outside of just the SEC you you talk about in the article how he also sits on the financial stability oversight council
6: yeah there's two kind of panels that uh that uh, are important in this area. One is the Financial Stability Oversight Council, and that's kind of an uber group of regulators that looks at, um, you know, practices that are potentially dangerous to the financial system. And then the President's Working Group on Financial Markets, which is a smaller group that advises the President on some of these same, you know, market impacts of things. And uh, he's really um, the the main person on both those panels that is, uh, you know, most experienced in crypto. So, people uh, who've worked with him on this stuff say that uh, his his views are taken pretty seriously.
1: Robert, he didn't give you any clue as to whether or not we're going to get a Bitcoin ETF <laughs> allowed in the U.S. anytime soon.
6: Yeah, unfortunately not. Um, but he is uh, giving a speech today at the uh, Aspen security forum, uh, which may touch on some of that. And um, he said that, uh, you know, he's continuing to think <laughs> about it. And he understands that a lot of people are very interested in this.
1: I feel like if he was going to tell Aspen, he probably would have told you and Benjamin.
6: <laughs> I have a
3: feeling we're still going to be waiting a while. As well.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think it's still going to be a little while. But for now, I think there are some Canadian ETFs that do. Pretty much the same thing. Great big take story, Robert. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate your insight. Robert Schmidt uh, writing with Benjamin Bain about Gary Gensler getting ready for more crypto oversight. He wants to make rules, which makes sense considering the fact that that's his job. He's a rulemaker in the Securities and Exchange uh, Commission. And he's going to be dealing with something that he knows, fortunately, a lot about. So maybe people will be less angry about the rules that he makes I think there are a lot of people that just don't understand what goes on in this space to begin with. But if you want to get a look at this story, just type NI, big take, go. This is Bloomberg.
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at steeple.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
2: Steeple Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
1: Let's get away from politics and get back over to the markets because we're seeing a lot of action in the markets today. Not a lot of direction in terms of equity indexes, but um, we still see yields at incredible lows. One sixteen fifty six on the 10-year right now. And we see uh, the the uh, real yields right now dropping, and they and they have been uh, down for a while. But right now, down at negative 118 basis points. So it's a pretty incredible. Uh, it, it's a pretty incredible environment to working in. Dan Genter joins us. He is the chief executive officer of RNC Genter Capital Management. They've got five billion dollars of assets under management. And Dan, I wonder what you make of this. It must be. One of the most asked questions: Why are rates so low if we're looking at economic growth that's so strong?
7: Well, I think you could, the only thing you can really look at, Matt, is that uh, just a fairly typical flight to quality, and the and the real concern here is what's happening with the Delta variant of COVID-19. I mean, you, we've had uh, a number of false starts with regards to you know people trying to uh, come come out of the closet and get back and reintegrate into society. And, and now I think when companies literally were setting guidelines and dates for people to return to the office and setting those parameters, you know, now they don't know what to do again. So I think that you're, you're in a situation where you're combining two factors, which is uh, the market's just had a, a tremendous run of what we've seen so far this year, both on the back of earnings and some multiple expansion. You know, it's, it's, it's trying to take a deep breath anyway. And now when you put the new COVID fears on top of it, you know, you're just, again, you're seeing some concern. You're seeing some flight to quality. You're seeing, are you going to be able to continue to push these earnings forward at this pace, which is what we really need to support the market?
3: Are you one of those people fleeing to quality, Dan, or where are you positioning?
7: <clears throat> no, we, we're we really in a situation where right now we're we're just looking for value. So I guess to some degree, you could say that we're going to quality, but it, but for us, it's been more that we've been really focusing on, you know, since the fourth quarter of last year. I mean, we we feel that the overall market itself is, it's, look, it's, earnings are really the game right now. We think the concerns about inflation are really have kind of faded into the background, at least for the time being. And earnings is really what is going to drive this market. The, the ability to expand multiples beyond here, we think is very, very limited. So being focused on earnings and then in line with that, being focused on valuations to us, we think, is key. You know, and, and that, we feel, will continue with a resurgence of some rotation back to value that we saw in the first half.
1: It's great to have somebody on the program um, who actually, in a sense, puts his money where his mouth is with stock picks. And uh, you've got a couple that I think are pretty popular. Um, BMY and CVX are, are a couple that we've had um, – guys and, and, and gals on in the past who are really behind these, these stocks. Why?
7: Well, I think, again, it's value. I mean, when you look at what you're getting, for Bristol-Myers, the, the, the biggest issue with Bristol-Myers is that people are very concerned about the back end of the pipeline, as certain drugs are coming off a patent. Uh, we don't have as much concern, and we think the current flows are very strong. I mean, they're going to continue to be a leader in oncology and cardiovascular disease, I mean, they have some of the biggest drugs that are in that area. You look at where their cash flow is right now, they have 8% free cash flow. As you have a company that's trading at, at a you know, an 8.3 PE right now, based upon our estimates. So I think that the real issue is is that we like the healthcare space. We think this is really undervalued. and the, And the big thing becomes, as I mentioned, is the back end, because – we feel that when you look at the new drugs that are coming online, I mean these have revenue capability that's twenty to twenty five billion and the street very cautiously is putting roughly a ten billion dollar number on that. So so we see that potential being significantly higher and then when you look at the current valuation at roughly eight times and you get a two point eight percent yield while you wait, you know, we find that very attractive. And when you look at C V X it's it's a similar thing in the oil space. Uh, and if you want to make a pure play on the commodity price, this is one of the best places to do it. And we think at you know, roughly $70 a barrel now, we think we'll continue to creep up near closer to $80. Uh, you're in a situation where you look at forward you know, earnings of what we think is quite reasonable here. You know, you're trading about 14 times, and a big kicker mm-hmm. is you're getting five and quarter percent while you wait in dividend yield, and they only need $50 a barrel to cover it. So okay. it's a, to us, once again, very strong value.
3: Dan, just quickly, we only have about 30 seconds left, but what would you be staying far away from here? What kind of sector?
7: Well, I don't want to paint it with a total brush, but I think we'd be taking some money off the table in some of the technologies. I mean, you're, you know, once again, we think they've had a good run again. They've come back, you know, after value took over in the fourth quarter in the first half of the year. And so, you know, looking at that to maybe lighten up a little bit and get back into some of the cyclicals.
1: Dan, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate getting your insight today. Jan- Dan Genter is the chief executive officer at RNC Genter Capital Management. And uh, as I said, he's got $5 billion in assets under management and uh, talk to, talks to us about stocks that he likes, about actual picks, which is great to have. He likes Lincoln National, he likes BMY, he likes CVX, and he likes Altria. This is Bloomberg.